Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. Having a conversation with Nate Sabine is one of my favorite things to do. I always walk away with a perspective I haven't thought of before. Growing up in Terrace, BC as a skate kid, he left his small hometown in the mid-90s for a bigger city, but not without bringing his interest for skate culture, music, style, and hospitality along with him. For the last 25 years, Nate's been a leader in the entertainment and music industry, heading up brand and marketing for the Donnelly Group, before becoming the Director of Business Development for Blueprint Entertainment. In this conversation, we explore his younger years growing up biracial, navigating changes in his industry with the pandemic, mental health, being a father, and much, much more. Please enjoy this wide-ranging talk with the one and only Nate Sabine. Nate, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Craft. Hi, May. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited for this conversation. I, mm. feel, I feel like we have regular conversations, but it's nice to have this one recorded so we yeah. can share it with yeah, others. Yeah, no doubt for posterity and for all that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely for posterity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know that the other day we were talking about how we were connected, and it sounds like we met like 10 years ago at some Donnelly event through our mutual friend Tiffany. Yeah. Who's one of the best publicists in the biz. She sure is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still kind of dispute the timeline a little bit. <laughs> I feel like it was a little bit earlier, but sure, like 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. 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 And you were, the, you were with the Donnelly Group back then. I was, yeah. yeah. I was a brand and marketing director right. for five and a half years. Yeah. 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 And then we just time. figured out we had a mutual web of friends, mm-hmm. as the city often has amongst people. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of went from there. It really did. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's take it back. Um, you're from Terrace, BC, and mm-hmm. you're a skateboard kid. Yeah. What was Still it like? Still am. <laughs> yes. um, I mean, it was it was pretty idyllic in a lot of ways. Like it was, it's beautiful up there, mm-hmm. and when you're quite young, like I had no kind of like I, I didn't feel othered or like I didn't fit in for my childhood years it was really it was comfortable it's beautiful um i didn't realize that my family didn't have a ton of money like my dad was really well educated and very very intelligent um as was my mom but uh didn't care about money you Mm -hmm. know my dad worked at the college my mom worked on on our like sort of uh like this program called reconnect where she reconnected uh indigenous youth with their communities and stuff like that so you know things that are that are altruistic and awesome, but not a lot of dough. But again, I had no idea, and it was it was like that, and it was dope until you know I had two uh, two sisters and a brother, so we had you know there's six of us. It was it was awesome, um, but then you know it started getting older and looking around and listening to a lot of hip hop and punk and all that stuff. I mean, a skateboarder and just going like realizing that. It was really messed up, the place that I was living and wanting to get out a mm-hmm. lot, um, being kind of really, really angry and disenfranchised and all the rest of it. And I couldn't wait to get out. And, uh, and here's where I ended up, mm-hmm. you know. So I left pretty much as soon as I graduated. Like I, I got out of high school, um, 
barely and uh and i saved a bunch of money and moved down here i moved in with my older sister right downtown at, at uh butte and barkley which mm-hmm. was just off robson street which back in the day that's you know people were still like cruising down robson street <laughs> and you know what i mean like that was what you kind of did and then i don't know all the clubs and the skating and the just everything mm-hmm. it was uh yeah, it was what I wanted at the time. Yeah. You were saying that at, at some point you realized that things were messed up where you were living. What do you mean by that? Um, just looking at the the racial makeup and the, the obvious, the racism a lot. Um, you know, I went to school with a ton of indigenous kids and they, they had it really tough. And a lot of them came from tough backgrounds as well. And it was you know in in retrospect it was on full display just in in the actions the way that people carried themselves and stuff like that um the way that my my friends parents would talk about at pretty much everybody else or every other race when i was present and you know i could only assume and a, a few times i caught them talking about you know like using the n-word and stuff like that too and and again i didn't because my, my parents were such, um, how do I say, they were social justice warriors kind of thing. And they were kind of turning the other cheek type of people um, to a certain degree. And I, I was kind of like, a, by, by the time I got old enough, I was just kind of like, like, fuck yourself. Like, if that's how you perceive things, then that's like the, what you're talking about, whatever. But I mean, I remember going doing a, a grade 11 or 12 project and it was me and two other dudes and our thing was going to uh, interview a head nurse at the hospital up there. So we go and it's all pretty normal. And then at the end of the interview, she just throws out there that she has her own beliefs about certain things that don't fit into the, the hospital's value system. And one of those beliefs is that, you know, people shouldn't mate outside of their race and she's saying this looking right at me wow and i'm going like what the f-? like things that that people would just lose their job for nowadays but that's kind of it was so much the norm mm-hmm. and you know everything that you could think of was was just thrown at you or thrown around you and it was it was really kind of ugly and it definitely made me feel like even though I, I personally got along fine because I was smart, people liked me, like whatever. And also because I didn't give a shit. Um, but it wasn't anywhere that I pictured myself or that, you know, I, I just knew that it was messed up. It went against everything that I was reading and hearing and that I believed in. Yeah. Um, and I think probably every small town is like that. I mean, everywhere is like that to mm-hmm, a certain extent mm-hmm. but it's you know when it, you're in a town like that and it's a microcosm of the world it it's just so much more obvious right and your perspective was so much wider so you, you had yeah. to go somewhere bigger oh yeah when i was 14 and my brother was 13 my aunt who lived in england so my dad grew up in barbados and he came to canada on scholarship so he went to u of t and then he went to ubc but his sister went to uh to england and so when we were 14, 13, they brought us over there for a month. And it was the most transformative month of my life. Like it was the, the first time I was around all black people all the time and all these crazy accents and 
you know, um, rituals and just the community. It was crazy to be the lightest skinned people there and to be kind of outside the culture, but just absorbing it all. And I remember walking through London and seeing posters for uh, like De La Soul and stuff who had just performed there. Like, I think we had missed the De La Soul concert by like five days. And <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah. I bought all these all these rap tapes that I couldn't get in Canada and all this sort of stuff. And I got a flat top and came back yeah. to Canada. I was just, it, it was like, I was kind of radicalized at that mm. point. And I, I never looked back as far as all the rest of it. And, and again, I was young and I was mad and all that stuff. And so it was easy for me to just dismiss everything that didn't fit in. Mm -hmm. But you know, I was pretty, I was pretty mad. Yeah, how, how did you angry. feel when you met that side of your family? Like, did it feel oh. like home? Did it feel like... Yeah, yeah, you know, that's a great question. It really, it really kind of did. It felt much more um, natural than, than what I was experiencing on mm -hmm. the day-to-day. -day. Um, and I don't know if that was a construct that was in my head or if that, that's really the way it was, but no, it felt amazing. Mm. And uh, it felt like I was missing out. And even though, you know, that was my culture, like, quote unquote, um, it gave me a lot of respect for the way that any other culture is. I, I started thinking about how really we don't have any idea of how other cultures are, you know. Um, and that's one of the things that even still bothers me today or that I think about a lot today is that when we talk about multiculturalism and we talk about um you know uh everybody getting along and and all these sorts of things and like absolutely we should get along but you need to recognize the differences and i i feel like people don't want to talk about that too much people want to be like oh we're all the same we're all human beings like yeah yeah, yeah of course we are but you, you need to recognize where people are coming from yeah. and you have to meet people where they are mm -hmm. and to me that that's one of the biggest divides and the the biggest and simplest things that are that's dividing us right now is just meeting people where they are right right because there's a level of understanding that's just beyond like you said we're all humans it's it's like that person's culture what's the history of of that culture and what they've been through there's generational trauma there's there's just so many layers yeah yeah exactly mm -hmm. exactly hmm. but um but yeah i mean when i moved here it was really quite eye-opening and uh it was everything that i wanted to see you know like going to rap shows and going to, to nightclubs and skating at spots and and meeting these these dudes that i had only seen in videos and stuff like that it was it was amazing for like an 18 19 year old kid to go through um and then you found yourself in entertainment and hospitality mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so yeah i i guess around two 1999 2000 or something i started promoting rap shows like independent rap shows and dudes that were local you know like mocha only Kiprioso's type of dudes and um and then we scaled up eventually we brought on a, a partner named kyle craft who ran uh battle axe records for a long time mm -hmm. he's uh what up crafty he's an amazing dude um anyway so yeah we did probably over 300 shows and and then that just kind of turned just being in the culture you know what i'm saying like being into fashion being into skateboarding being into music being in, you know i started managing rap groups and doing all this stuff and 
and uh, myself and uh, Tim Knight and Tony Ferguson opened up the A-Life store and we were doing clothing distro and had a shine nightclub and all that stuff. Like it was, it was wild times. This is probably 2003, four, mm-hmm. like around there. I think we opened A-Life in 05. And then, uh, then things got a little more serious because the Donnelly guys knocked on my door and I came over as their director of marketing mm-hmm. in 06. Yeah. And, and you were there for a number of years, yeah? Mm. Yeah, I was there for five and a half years, which at the time seemed like a long time. And that was probably the longest that I had held a job. But, uh, but you know, now I've been with Blueprint for eight years, and it's gone by like a flash. So it's one of those things. Like, time is relative. But Donnelly was a crazy. That was like boot camp for for getting things done. I think Mm. we opened two stores every year when I was there. We were booking DJs. We were like, I was responsible for everything from what the staff was wearing to the marketing to, you know, advertising, PR, like bang, 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 just really, really seriously turned it up a lot. Um, And those, you know, those guys got hated on a lot. We got hated on a lot at the time, but, you know, it was gentrifiers or whatever it was. But yeah. You know, it, it it is it is what it is, and it was what it was. But uh, it was it was a learning, yeah, like a crazy. Like I couldn't pay for that education, and working with or for dudes like like Jeff Donnelly or like Alvaro now or or like Tim Knight, it's it, it's crazy the insight that those guys have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think it is about your personality that um, makes you so good at your your job? Because you know you went from. Um, brand marketing director and now you're doing business development mm-hmm. at Blueprint so there's this sort of natural evolution of things mm. yeah, what do you think it is about you? You know what I, d- I don't I actually don't think that I'm really good at my job mm. like I've never really sat back and thought that so thank you for saying so but um, I really like people I really like politics um, I, I shouldn't say that I, I like meeting people I don't really, really like people, which mm. is not, it's not the same thing. Um, I like meeting people. I like collaboration. I really like politics. And when you think about, or the way that I think about it, everything is politics. You know, it's, there's, there are always um, things you have to navigate. There are always deals to be made. There's always interest to consider and all the rest of it. Um, and so, so do you I think, think you're good at reading people? I think, think so. That's what it, I actually, it is? I, like. I do think that I'm pretty good at reading people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a pretty, you know, I'm a sensitive dude myself. I, I care about people. Like I care about people's feelings. I never want somebody to feel, you know, like shamed or or othered or less than or anything like that. I don't want them to feel disrespected. Um, and I want to hear what they have to say until I don't want to hear it anymore. I think I have <laughs> yeah. a better idea or something like that. But. Um, I I also think that it's just a natural progression that's happened because marketing and all that kind of stuff is really, and this is something I didn't realize in the early days for a long time, it's very bottom line driven. Mm-hmm. That's you are pushing people, you're pulling people in, you're doing whatever you can to sell a product or to get people into your doors or to, to uh, market a brand or whatever it is. Um, so I think that learning all those things and then coming to business development and, and what I do right now is kind of I'm at the intersection of business development 
sponsorship, brand building, and marketing. Mm-hmm. So it's all kind of like I'm kind of still in the same thing a little bit, but I'm not doing all of the marketing exercises or or following up with the team. Mm. Um, so I think it's kind of natural, but, you know, it's interest and it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's big picture stuff that mm-hmm, you're doing now. Mm-hmm. A lot more yeah, strategic real. rather than the doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a lot more fun now. Yeah. I, mean, I, I Actually, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's always been a lot of fun, but it's a lot different now. Mm. It's a lot more strategy now and, and uh, you know, thinking mm-hmm. as opposed to just always doing and grinding. Right. Yeah, it's that long-term sustainability. How is this? This mm-hmm. brand company gonna mm-hmm. sustain into the future? Yeah, and it's yeah. crazy because you don't think all the time about what you're doing or about how your actions or whatever could affect the company, or you know, you just kind of do things. Mm-hmm. And and you know, sometimes I look back and I'm going like, wow, five years ago I could never imagine taking on something like this, but um. But yeah, you just you, you just grow. You just and grow it, and it do. It feels natural, yeah. Yeah, and I guess right now, um, well, in the last nine months, there is a lot of strategy that probably had to to happen. Twenty twenty happened basically, yeah. and so your industry had to make a lot of pivots, mm-hmm. having to rethink things. You know, what was one of the hardest moments for you um, during the pandemic, at, which is still going? But mm, as a leader, mm, mm, mm. the hardest moment was realizing that we are going to have to lay off 500 plus people you know that we really didn't have a choice that everything was shutting down because even though we kind of saw it coming we saw it cascading down through all the other countries and and all this sort of stuff and big festivals shutting down and all that everything um when when it hit us and we we're like oh god damn now this is here this is us um that was the big one but then two or three months later when we realized that it wasn't going away, that it was going to be much longer than anyone had anticipated, um, that was that was probably harder. You mm-hmm. know, when it first happened, I'd be lying if I said that I thought that we wouldn't be back by September. Like in my head when it was happening, I thought we'd lose the summer, we'd be back by September, October, and we'd be okay. I never thought we'd be here. And that it's completely naive, but I mean, I'm, not, I don't know shit about pandemics. You know, I mean, I I do now, but, but uh, you know, it it, yeah, yeah. That that was a hard one because I mean, I know I'm in a stage of my life. I'm gonna be okay ish if if the world is if society is okay. But when I think because that's where I came from, like from being a kid just hustling from being a bar a bartender from being a busboy when I was a kid I I wa- like my first job here was washing dishes in a restaurant when you think about those people and we employ a ton of people like that um and and knowing that's where I came from and again having a family that couldn't really help me out like there wasn't mm-hmm. extra money laying around and I'm thinking like holy christ we got to lay off all these these kids these people um, that was that was tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I guess after that, the the tough part was being asked about it all the time, right. you know, and, and doing media, um, just getting out there and telling the story about how hard you'd been hit, 
that was uh, that was always a little bit of a bitch. And then the other thing after that was really was doing the work to to raise awareness at a provincial and federal level and and try and get some action behind the industry. Mm-hmm. That was really hard because you're dealing with things like myself. I have a, a, a family, all these responsibilities. We're doing all these things, and then you're still working trying to to get some money raised or get some funds put aside for your industry and right. all all of that and it was it was really heavy duty and you're quite involved you're on the board of music bc correct yeah that and which is somewhat new but mm-hmm. we launched a program called sound on back in ugh, june july i think mm-hmm. it was with uh, music bc with a couple of of other producers and and uh somebody from the city jared martineau um which w- it was really gratifying it was it felt good because we were getting people back to work a little bit we were making a little bit of a difference um but yeah no the music bc actually being on the board is new but you know i'm on the board of the dvbia as well and i sit on committees i sit on a committee with creative bc too so all of these things and everyone's coming you know trying to come together and, and figure something out and you saw kind of everything and everybody all of the reactions from people that were solid and feeling, you know, understanding things were going to come back to people that were thought they were losing everything and were going into a deep, dark place. And so through all these industries, through tourism, hospitality, entertainment, like even sports a little bit, dealing with all these people and all of the, just seeing all the humanity of it was really, really tough. Yeah. I read an interesting article. I suggest everyone reads it. Um, the uh, the writer Mark Manson, he always does a reflection on the year at the end of the year. And um, he he sent a, a call out to all of his readers to ask them, you know, what they learned through 2020 and the pandemic. And then what he does is he, what he did was he compiled all of the answers and he found themes and he came came up with 10 major themes that that came up and you're just talking about you know people's reactions and what range and what came out of uh his research and findings was that um people during the pandemic whatever their default setting was was just amplified so Mm. if you're anxious you became more anxious if you're optimistic you became more optimistic it was Mm. it was an interesting insight and i've seen that in my world too just this scale of Right, how right. people reacted emotionally to yeah, yeah. To all it, of this, it's been incredibly tough. And you and I were talking the other day, and I was saying how, at a certain point, I I got fed up with people that couldn't sacrifice. You know, seeing their family or going on a picnic or whatever it was. I'm and I was kind of like, just hunker down. Mm-hmm. It's you know, our parents or many of our parents or grandparents, or whatever, went through wars and did all you know like. Vietnam was kind of our war. Like, I, I grew up reading about Vietnam, watching TV shows, like all this sort of stuff. To me, that was more of a sacrifice. World War II was a huge sacrifice when, you know, every manufacturing just went straight to weaponry. Women had to go to work, and, you know, there were people dying all over the place, all this horrible stuff. I'm like, really? You can't just wear a mask and shut the hell up for six months kind of thing? Mm-hmm. But I... I softened on that a lot recently like I was saying because 
because it, it is hard. Everything is relative. And, you know, <laughs> just the monotony, the Groundhog Day of it, um, and thinking about all the people that have to go out there and actually go into high-risk situations. And I'm not just talking about frontline workers and stuff like that, but I don't know, people that are delivering all this food or people that are working in, in our bars and restaurants and all this sort of stuff that either don't have a choice or, you know, it yeah, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's absolutely crazy. But, um, yeah, I mean, we'll see the end of it. Like, thank God. Yeah. But yeah. this it's it. This is going to be the defining thing for Oh, absolutely. Like, even for me and looking at my life, like, wow, this is definitely <laughs> a defining year even for me um, personally. But um, I just wanted to go back in, mm. uh, to the entertainment and music industry, and we were talking about pivots and things like that. Is, is, is the industry forever changed? You know what? I don't really think so. Mm. I don't think that fundamentally it's changed. Um you know, there's been talk for years about AR and VR and those sorts of things. And, you know, and I get it, you know, that that's very, we've looked at a lot of solutions and putting somebody that's in Australia that wants to be at our festival in Vancouver, putting them front and center and do like a VR headset or whatever it is, like that type of thing. Um, Sure, and it seems a lot more real right now, given all the streaming options and what everybody's been doing, and it's been fantastic. I really do feel that the creative industries, whether it's music or theater, ballet, whatever it is, they've really shown their creativity and resilience. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think that when things come back online, there's going to be any replacement for going to a theater, going to a concert, those sorts of things. Um, I know for sure I can tell you that artists aren't asking for any less money than they're making, um, you know, because we're in the process of booking for a year from now. And no, everybody, it's all still the same. Like the machinery mm-hmm. is still there and, you know, people have a certain value or however they want to look at it. Um, so no, mm. I don't. Uh, for a while, like if you talked to me six months ago, I might have said yes, but I don't really think so. I think that other aspects, or, or rather other industries have changed. Like I think that hospitality and the food service industry has probably changed fundamentally mm. much more so than entertainment. Right, right. So, yeah, because, uh, you know, Spotify is doing all those online concerts, you know, with, you know, mm. amazing artists and you pay $10. And But I guess there really is no replacement for listening to music live or like no. you said, seeing theater and shows live. No, there just isn't. Um, what people, you know, cause you, there are a lot of think pieces out about this sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and, but what people don't understand or, or fail to remember is that we are social animals. Like, whether you want to admit it or not, even like the most antisocial or introverted person, you need to be around other people. Yeah. And like all the talk about the the roaring 20s that are going to happen, all that stuff aside, because yeah, sure it is. Um, we're just, we're built to be around each other. Mm-hmm. That, that's really what it is. And to, ex- and to share experiences with each other. So uh, maybe incrementally we'll see like the, the virtual or the online side of attending an experience. Maybe it's grown by a few percent, but 
Um, I think we're going to see most of that stuff and all the streaming stuff drop away mm. as soon as people can go out again. Right, right. So it's more like an addition rather than a replacement for exactly. what was. Exactly. Mm. I mean, do I think in 100 years so that that's going to be? Yeah, yeah, I really do. <laughs> I really do. That's, you know, that there's no other future but that as far mm. as I'm concerned. But that's a long ways off. Right, right. And, you know, with this sacred pause as as some are calling it. I actually really quite really uh, hmm. like the term. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. I mean, um, I can't remember where I heard it, but I thought, you know, that sounds about right for me. What did it bring up for you personally? You know what? Not, hmm, hmm. Not as much as you might think. Hmm. It, it kind of like, it gave me a lot more time with my daughter, which is incredibly valuable um but not that much i mean you were just saying that how it has brought out people's traits like if you're anxious you're you're curious you're curious um and kind of that's kind of where i went with it too you know i i ended up being able to read a little bit more and and uh and kind of think a little bit more but it didn't really change my trajectory a lot it Mm -hmm. it kind of you know, I, I thought about values a lot. Hmm. Um, but where I'm at, and it's not a, a plug, but with Blueprint, our values are really, really solid and aligned with my own personal ones. And no, I didn't have a lot to... What are those values? Well... Well, if they line, in, line in with a, yours, I'm in, curious about yeah, yours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Mine it, are very, very simple. Like, be a good person good to other people um you know take action about where you can and and help your community and those around you um don't beat yourself up you know understand that you make mistakes that everybody makes mistakes and you need to be forgiving that sort of thing and uh yeah just try not to be judgmental Mm -hmm. um you know at blueprint our our values are much more you know, we have like four pillars and all that sort of stuff. But for me, it's, it really comes, it's very simple. It's like, don't be a dick. Yeah. Try not, and as much as in the past I've, I have been, you know, like when you're young and brash and all that sort of stuff, but no, just try your best to be a good person. And if you're not, if you don't feel right, get help. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Like that, I mean, and that's actually maybe the one meditation that I, that I came across, like, and you know how I feel about mental health. and Yeah, I was just going to get into that, but yeah, I'll let you okay, finish. Okay, yeah. But, yeah. but anyway, but that that's probably the biggest thing because I've seen that come out in so many more people that, that uh, I would have expected. Where mm-hmm. I'm like, yo, do something. Yeah. Don't be ashamed of this. Like, go and get some help. Like, sort yourself out. Yeah, and you and um, another podcast guest, good friend of ours, uh, Garrett Louie, you guys launched um, a series called mm-hmm. um, Mental Wealth, right? That's right. Yeah. 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 And I remember um, going to the first one, and I believe you had a pro skateboarder. Was he a pro skateboarder? Snowboarder. Or snowboarder. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, he had a mental breakdown, and now he's really involved in speaking about mental health. And it was a very raw talk. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. during his Q and A. Um, I remember wondering if there was going to be a ton of engagement from the audience. There were a lot of young people in hospitality and entertainment that were there. And 
I ended up being really struck by how many people did ask questions and the types of questions. So I was hearing a lot of them ask, how do I connect with others in real life and not just virtually? Mm -hmm. And I remember that really sat with me after. And back to that thing about we're meant to be connected. Um, but also that that disconnect that the younger generation feels with how to connect in real life. Yeah. Can you imagine having a, to go through that? I mean, there's obviously been disconnection for a long time, but having the alternative of the, the whole online world, it's something that I can't really fathom and, and the influence that it has on a, on a young person's day-to-day life. But yeah, that first one was really raw. It was really like kind of on purpose, but underproduced. We, mm-hmm. we kind of just wanted, you know, we didn't allow cameras in. We didn't, we didn't record it, any of that stuff, just because we wanted people there to, to have a real conversation about it and be able to, to leave knowing that it, was, it took place there and it stayed there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, it, it, was, it was pretty moving. It was, you know, there, people were crying and stuff yeah. like that. Like, it was, it was very affecting. Um, and I had been to one similar but but uh but you know a lot more by the book that i think creative bc had put on a couple years earlier it was it was it was kind of um it was eye-opening to me in that there were so many people who had kids that were in the music industry and they were there on behalf of their kids saying listen i have a 15 year old she's really talented beautiful and she's putting herself out online she's got this many followers but she's getting these types of messages or she's withdrawing because of this or or he he's afraid to do this or should they even be in the music industry these types of things and you know um again just short-sighted or, or lack of experience i had never really thought about how different the kids experiences would be to my own mm-hmm. um you know i i had issues with mental health when i was in my mid 30s early 30s maybe that um and those are they're like everyday things now but when they're happening i had no idea you know i mm-hmm. was diagnosed as uh generalized anxiety disorder gad and that you know as far as all that goes easy easy to uh to deal with and, and get help for and all those sorts of things but i was i had a myopia about it just thinking about people around me and my friend group and that sort of thing without even approaching the younger mm-hmm. generation and how harrowing that must be. Yeah. It, you know, it's it's one thing when you say you're getting bullied at school in the 80s or 90s. You just you go to school, you get bullied, you get home, you're okay. But now, like, that stuff just follows, follows you, you around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's horrifying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. And my biggest thing around it well, you know, obviously getting help, but but is removing the stigma because mm-hmm. the stigma is is what's really really um, I don't know putting people through some pain that they don't have to go through. And I was I just saw a sleep therapist for entirely different reasons. Anyway, my therapist was telling me that through COVID, um, suicide rates have actually gone down mm-hmm. worldwide, except in Japan. Anyway, um, but yeah, that they've gone down because the stigma is being 
um, removed because everybody's talking about their mental health and yeah. how they feel and how they're struggling and how they're coping and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, call centers have gone, the, the calls are going through the roof and, and counselors are being reached out to on record levels, which, you know, maybe back to the, the uh, what do you call the, the COVID? The, <laughs> the sacred pause. The sacred pause. Maybe that is it for a lot of people. Yeah. Is that they can address these things and not feel shamed about them. Yeah, absolutely. I was having a conversation with a friend, actually, another podcast guest, and we were talking about this very thing. And, you know, I'd said in some ways the pandemic has leveled the playing field for everyone in terms of mental health. It's, you know, everyone's going through it. Mm-hmm. which gives you the space to talk about it. Yeah, and that and that's what it is. It's talking. It's a conversation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like a dozen years ago when I was going through it, I maybe told my best friend about it, you mm-hmm. know, and I went and did my therapy and did, did all that stuff, but I did it very privately. Um, now I'll tell almost anybody, you know what I mean? It's right. Just, yeah, and that was, you know, I was in my mid-30s. I'm, I was a full-grown person, but uh, but no, I, I wasn't willing to at the time. But, yeah, that stigma, it's its like anything. Mm-hmm. You know, shame is, is what keeps us living in our basement, and that's what you have to, you have to crawl mm. out of your basement. You got to get the fuck out of there. Right. It's hard work to, oh, yeah. to look at the shadows and... Yeah, I mean, we all have things that we don't want to deal with or that, mm-hmm. you know, that really, that are running our show and whether you're aware of them or not, but but that's really, like, fundamentally, it's it's very simple. Like, human beings were super complex, but actually simple at the same time. Mm-hmm. You, you have to look yourself in the mirror. You have to face these things. You have to pull yourself out of the basement mm-hmm. and start living. Yeah, right. You know, been thinking a lot about the word um, thrive lately. And Mm. um, there's this phrase I feel like has been floating around. It's, you know, we're all meant to thrive, not survive. Mm -hmm. And and it is so true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Surviving is, Mm -hmm. my God, you know, that for us living here, especially like that shouldn't no one should just be surviving here. Mm hmm. We live in arguably the best country in the world. We have all sorts of advantages. We, we have everything, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, yeah. Everyone should, should. oh God, I was going to say strive to thrive, <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway. But, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. no, totally. Yeah, and, and yeah we're, we're meant to, and I, I feel like a lot of that, that survival comes from, you know, the coping mechanisms that we had to mm. develop um, mm-hmm. at a really, really young age, um, well, which triggers this. Well, everybody armors flight. up. Like, armors up, yeah. Fight. Yeah, that's, that's what flight. you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's no escaping it, but, you know, you just learn ways to work around it and realize when you're armoring up and mm-hmm. that most of the time you don't have to. Right. It's kind of like a very... Um, like the Zen approach and, and taking your, your self out of it as much as you can, your own ego and those sorts of things. I, uh, a long time ago, I did something called nonviolent communication mm. or, uh, oh God, what's the other word for it? Compassionate communication. And the very first thing that they teach you is to remove yourself. Like you're observing this person 
you're listening to them, you're reacting to them, but without with no sense of self. And uh, and that was it was really instructive. And it's it again, it sounds simple. Like I told just told you how to do it, but it is hard to do because we are made to think, especially here, like in this day and age in North America and all that sort of stuff. Like you're front and center all the time. Right. Like we are such mm-hmm. selfish people, really, you know? Um, so when you're told to remove yourself from that and just listen to this person, listen to their beef, listen to what they need and react to what they need, um, it's it's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. And when you start, when you're aware of that, and you start looking at people and, and just interacting on a day-to-day, you realize that most people aren't doing that at all. Right. You no. Know? Yeah. They're just going. Like, people just go. And you can't even be mad at them. No, they're in their own world. No, that's how we're programmed. They're not even thinking about you. (laughs) You know? No, they're not. (laughs) That's another crazy one. Like, how many hours have you spent at home going, oh, God, what did I say this thing in this meeting? Or what does Susie think about me? Or No one thinks about you. They're thinking about their lunch. Yeah, yeah. No one cares. Yeah. I feel like one of the things that... I've been asking myself, you know, when I'm feeling um, triggered in, in these ways too is, you know, is this going to matter even a, a day or a month from now? And if the answer is no, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm just going to And how often is the answer no? <laughs> All the time. All the time. <laughs> All the like time. It, it really never matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it. Uh, it's crazy. We all tiptoe through things and, and you know, try not to uh, – to upset other people and all that sort of stuff, which, cool, you know, mm-hmm. be diplomatic, be whatever. But, but no, we we all place way too much importance on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And have you found going back to the mental wellness? Um, are you finding that um, the younger generation in the industry are continuing to reach out to you or to G Man and and getting your mm-hmm. your perspective on on things and how they can make their way through the industry or your life in general? Yeah, uh, yeah, fair bit. And I know mm-hmm. that G does too. Mm-hmm. Um, I have so much respect for that dude, and, and he's mentored a lot of people, and, and I like to think that I have as well. But, you know, we, we both do, but not necessarily through mental wealth. Mm. I think we'd both like to get there one day through mental wealth and, and continue doing the seminars and, and adding some value. But it, it's really just a matter of... in. In our industry, there aren't a lot of people to, like, there's no roadmap. So you kind of look at, at people who have already done it or that are still doing it or whatever it is. Um, and you feel compelled as somebody who's been doing it for way too long to, to take people under your wing and, and tell them what you know and, and help them out. So it, it kind of happens naturally mm. that way, yeah. but not so much through the, through the mental wealth stuff yet. Although I do have some people, you know, the more that you open up, the more other people open up to you. But, but honestly, it's mostly been people in our age group mm. that, are, that come forward and say, yo, I've been struggling with this or I was diagnosed with this or whatever it is. Because I actually believe that, that millennials don't have the same stigma attached the the way that we do like they will talk about it they will like even though their experiences might stick with them more because of you know everything the whole online life and all that sort of stuff but they don't quite have the same stigma that we do like my i don't know how 
your upbringing was, but my dad was very much uh, old school West Indian, like, what are you talking about? Mm. Like, there, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of feeling. There's right. not, you know, the, it you was kind of, you tough it out, you suck it up, you, you just deal with it. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there was no time for that type of stuff. Right, right. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, it'll be interesting, like my daughter's four, like I was saying, it'll be interesting to see what her generation's like because there's all these like mega woke parents and yeah. they're either going to be the best or worst generation of people that have ever come out of, you know, out of society. Yeah. We'll see. Well, what do you want Manny to remember most about you? Oh. Hmm. You know, I think... I just want her to, to remember that I was that I was always there for her. Mm. I I want her to I don't know if she would remember or know this, but that I was a, a good man. Mm. Um, what does yeah. that mean to you? Well, that means being being there for the family and being a provider, um, being someone she could talk to, but also impacting the community. Um, Sounds yeah, a lot being, like presence. Like yeah, you wanted to yeah. feel that you were present. Oh, a lot. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of that, but I also want her to understand that you, you're responsible to more than just yourself. Um, so I want her, I, I try to model that for her and understanding, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I... God, that's a tough question. But yeah, no, I, I think I just wanted to, to remember me as a good man. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's the way that I remember my dad for mm-hmm. the most part, even though like he's got a ton of flaws and there's all this craziness in, in his background. Again, like my dad is he's 90, you know, he was born in 1930. So it, his life is is all over the place. But ultimately, mm-hmm. he was a good man. He's a good person. He did the right things as well as he could. Um, and I mean, that's all that any of us can ask for. Yeah. You can only do what you, what you're taught. This is, and this is really true. I mean, you, you have immigrant parents and, Mm. you know, my mom was, was the same. There is that sort of, you tough it out, you survive and and you're right. They were doing the best that they could. And it's, um, I think it's, I think it's a blessing that, you know, we are able to recognize that and, evolve it in our own ways and how we want to mm-hmm. teach our children mm-hmm. differently. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, uh, like I was just saying, it, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in real life because the styles of parenting and the beliefs and all the rest of it and schooling, everything has changed so much in the last 30, 40 years. Like the world has changed so much. But so we'll see. We'll see if the extra attention and, and coddling and, you know, like reasoning mm-hmm. through things. Uh, when, when Manny was like a year and a half old and I was carrying her around the ferry on the way to Victoria one time, I saw a dude with his son who must have been like, I don't know, like eight. His son was eight. Mm-hmm. And this guy's like, listen, Billy, you know, that, that's not fair. That's not fair, okay? And I'm going, what the, f- what are you saying to your kid? Like, that's not fair. Like you're, I, cause I didn't mm. quite get it. I, I, but now I can picture myself having that conversation. You know, you have 
like agreements with your kid, like almost like the, you know, a social agreement with your child where it's like, this is okay. That's not okay. And maybe that dude's saying that's not fair is <laughs> like my dad would have just said, you're not allowed to get out of the car on the ferry ride because you're being a little prick. Like, you know what I mean? Mm, but he mm-hmm. would just said, no, you're not, you're not getting this. You're not, but it's evolved into that. I don't, I mean, I don't know. Right. We'll, we'll see, but. Everyone's approaches know. are very different. Well, they're, yeah. they're different. They're, but the, the, the zeitgeist behind it is kind of the same. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's obviously the parents that are still very hardline and very either, you know, the more quote unquote traditional patrician kind of whatever but you know the woke parents that's like that's what i'm <laughs> waiting to see i wait to see if we if we just mess it up or not right you're waiting with bated breath yeah yeah Let's see how this goes oh god yeah i try not to think about it you know yeah. it's one of those things like every like day at a time like when you look at the boomers um like my mom's generation my mm-hmm. mom my mom grew up here um they're they're the worst like they went through they, they had everything. The economy was booming. Everything was fantastic. All these jobs, all these kids, all these schools, everything. And then they turn into hippies, cool. And then they turn into like Wall Street scumbags. Mm-hmm. It, it's not been great. Yeah. And they were, they were supposed to be like the best generation. Right. They Every, were supposed to be those game changers. Like, No, they're, they ended up being pretty awful. I don't mind saying this because I don't think any boomers going to listen to this. But yeah. yeah, no, they're they're awful. So mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, every th- this new style of parenting turns out some better people. Yeah, conscious, mm. conscious humans. Conscious. I think but you know, it, it's funny. I, years ago, um, I was reading a, an interview with I, I don't know Sadat X or some guy, like some 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 really like lefty, really dope rapper, um, and someone was talking about conscious rap and he's like what like what do you mean conscious rap as opposed to what like unconscious rap Hmm. and and at the time i remember reading it being like yeah yeah, yeah." like that doesn't make any sense like with conscious unconscious like what but it totally like people are unconscious now there's a lot of it there's a lot of people that just you know it actually it actually is a thing now mm-hmm. you know where you just like people are in their own bubble they just do their thing yeah they're completely unconscious yeah a lo- yeah people who just go through life with no awareness of the people around oh. them and um yeah i'm i'm hoping that that's i'm hoping that's changing mm-hmm. especially after a year like this year and oh all of God. the things that had bubbled up some really hard, fundamental, systematic shakeups that mm-hmm. will take a long time to smooth out. But oh, nonetheless, there is movement. Yeah, yeah, like thank goodness. But yeah, it'll be it'll be very interesting, very mm-hmm. interesting over the next five, ten years. Yeah, how this affects everything fundamentally. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, a first world problems like a. a looked at a couple of articles that were talking about how children are going to be affected because a, a year of living in semi-isolation and all this sort of stuff. And I, I'm just going, again, what are you talking about? Like for a kid to have to spend more time with their parents or with their brothers and sisters or not be as 
as uh, socialized because they're not in school for, for nine months or a year or something. I'm like, what about like all the stuff that goes on every day around the world that is so much worse? Or, you know, like my father-in-law grew up in post-war Britain. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We're, we're ridiculous. Yeah, you know what? I It's... Um interesting that we're talking about this because I was pondering this this today you know and how Christmas was so different for lots of people this year because you know couldn't be with their families as you know normal tradition would have it and that was the same for me not being able to fly home to, to California and then I was I was thinking about it a couple of days ago I mean you know what at the end of the day this is one year out of my life yeah that I won't be able to do what I always did that's one year yeah it's nothing. You know, it's it's nothing. You know, if everything is going the way that it's going, we should be semi back to normal by next Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's again yeah. one of those things where it's like, you know what, we can do this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> so like, we we have to do this. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Like, like I was saying at the beginning of, the, of our talk, you know, I understand it. It, it is hard. Mm-hmm. You know, just you know. My neighbors, they've got two kids and they've this and the other thing. Like, I get it. Mm-hmm. It's hard, but like, geez, come on. Yeah. And it's one year. Humans are, I wonder if people look, you know, will look at their lives and actually realize how resilient they were through through this year. You know, it. Do you be, think, though, like, when I think back to the beginning of this whole thing, yeah. I already forget every, almost every aspect of it. Like, I forget about the uncertainty because nobody knew anything. Mm. I forget about the extreme isolation. I forget about the financial worry. I forget, uh, like, I don't think about all that stuff. And it's only been nine months. Mm. So when, you know, again, people are, uh, I saw a headline like, oh, the end of the handshake. No one's ever going to shake hands again. I'm just going, what are you talking about? Humans are, like, we are incredible at forgetting Mm. all the really bad stuff. Like, That's just, I think that's how we get through the same way that, you know, you have a child and it is brutal. Like it's, it's hard. Your kid could be colicky up all night. No, no, no. And then a year and a half later, you're like, let's have another kid. Like you just forget. I, I think that again, we were talking about survival mechanisms and stuff like that. I think that Mm -hmm. that's what it is. Um, no, I don't think anyone's going to remember anything Mm -hmm. unless they journaled it. Unless they actually wrote it down and care to read about it. I mean, obviously, there's going to be writers that go forensic about it and do all that stuff. and Mega valuable because you want that perspective. Mm-hmm. But I think that even myself, I'm sitting here saying all this stuff. Five years from now, I'm going to be like, yeah, yeah, that sucked. But I'm not going to remember that much about it. Mm-hmm. Like, in a, in a real sense. You know, I'm not going to be scarred by it. I'm not going to think about, like, the money that I lost or this, right. you know. Or the fact that, I don't know. You're just going to keep going. You have to. Yeah. What, what the hell else are you mm-hmm. going to do? Mm-hmm. Are you a hopeful person or no, are you a realist? No. I like how you say that. Are you <laughs> hopeful or realist? That t- tells me <laughs> what you are. Um, no, no. I'm uh, I'm definitely uh, pessimistic most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I think that's being a realist. You talk to my wife. She thinks I'm pessimistic. But I'm like, I just... I just I look at what's going on around me, right? I'm I believe in dystopia. I believe that we're already living in it. But when I don't know, in like pop culture terms, I believe in like a Terminator 
RoboCop, Blade Runner, kind of like that is the future. Mm -hmm. And we're already living in it, like much more than we know. Um, And maybe that's cool. Maybe that is the way with this many people on the planet and all this sort of stuff that we have to live. Constant surveillance, like blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, you know economic inequality like yeah. it's going out of style and lack like, of water in countries lack aka of water Mad Max. The, yeah, yeah you know like the, mm-hmm. the climate all that sort of stuff no i don't i'm not very hopeful mm. i you know to be honest but again you just have to go through and you're here what are you what are you gonna do yeah but make the most of it and like you said be a good good human yeah like try and make your your time and other people's time on this planet as decent as possible Mm -hmm. like just just be decent yeah but yeah no we're not heading anywhere good i don't think yeah i feel like you may have asked uh or answered my last question which i ask all my guests but you know through what you do what is it that you want to leave behind in the world Mm. You know, it's funny because me and Garrett have been talking about legacy mm. because we're, we're getting old. He's older than I am, but we're, we're getting old. And I don't, I, I actually don't know. You know, some people want a street named after them or a building or something. I would love to have some kind of foundation to, I don't know, like, and, and depending on the day, it flips between like generally underprivileged kids and providing opportunities to to mental health um, support awareness whatever it is but uh, in five years from now that could be completely different um, I, I don't know does, does it even matter like what what I leave behind I, I just I think it, it's kind of important the work that you do here but I just I want to make an impact, a positive impact on people's lives, mm. whether that ends the minute that I'm gone or whatever. I don't know. And it's really cliche to say, but I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think about it that much. Mm. I don't think about like, you know, I think about what I'm going to do next, but I don't think about what I'm going to leave behind too much. Yeah. No. Well, if I could say something and, you know, Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, but I think you. that I think that what I see in you leaving behind is, you know, I always feel like after a conversation with you or after time spent with you, I feel I feel better than when I arrived. Oh, you know, even well, if I was in a good, good mood, I'm like, that was great. I feel energized. So I, I feel like you probably do that for many others. Oh well thank you for saying so. Yeah. I feel that way leaving our talks, too. Yeah. So maybe that's what you do as well. You're, you're a healer. Mm. Um, but, yeah, sure, I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take leaving it better than I left it. Yeah. No, leaving it better than I came into it. Yeah, I think sure. that's a good way to live. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I agree. Well, I look forward to our next conversation, whether it's recorded or not. Yeah, but me I'd, too. But uh, thank you always for your time. Thank you, May. If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes of The Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.